Thank you so much, uh, Ensemble. Great to hear from you this morning as we worship together here at Bethany Community Church. It is a joy and privilege to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us online, both in Seattle and the greater Seattle region and also around the world. We count it a privilege to share with you every week, and we are today closing a series entitled God's Good Reigns. Uh, next Sunday, we begin a new series in the book of Joel, but please take a moment now and pray with me as we bring this series to a close, a very important time in our life together. Father, thank you so much that we can gather in a scattered way, still listening to the same voice, your voice, and we ask that indeed your Holy Spirit would speak to us today, shaping us to be people of hope in the midst of despair, to be people of light in the midst of darkness, to be people of peace in the midst of anxiety. We're mindful, Father, that we live in incredibly difficult days by any standard, and yet you are with us. And so uh, our desire, Father, is to live yoked with you, following you, empowered by you. Would you lead us there even today, Father? We pray in the name of Christ, who is our hope. Amen. Well, in January of 2017, I was privileged to be speaking on the East Coast uh, for a gathering of camp leaders. It was one week after the inauguration of President Trump. And so these camp leaders had gathered from all over the place. And after the first meeting, I went into the dining hall. And because I'm from the West Coast, I don't know anyone in the room. I don't know anybody at all. And I have to decide where I'm going to sit, who will I sit with. And at one table, there was a group of people. All the women were wearing dresses. They were wearing head coverings. The men weren't, I mean, these are camp leaders. Most everyone in the room was wearing Gore-Tex and REI clothing and polar fleece and that kind of thing. At this one table, everyone was dressed, uh, if I can say it this way, they looked like farmers, basically, a distinct contrast to everybody else in the room. And I thought, those are the people I'm going to sit with. They seem like a, uh, an interesting group of people. So I go over to sit with them. They look different. I begin uh, speaking with them. And I discover that they are from a camp in upstate New York that spends their time taking inner city people of, mostly people of color, but minorities and people in poverty. They would, they would bring these kids up to this camp, take them through a high ropes course, and then begin mentoring relationships with these young people. Uh, they're Mennonites, they're pacifists, they're stridently pro-life, and because they're both pacifist and stridently pro-life, I was interested in their assessment of the election and our brand new president. So I said to them to kick off the dinner conversation, what do you think of our new president? And I thought it'd be a fun conversation. And this is what they said. It stuck with me. Four years later, it still sticks with me. They said, uh, it doesn't really matter to us who is president. Our calling never changes. And this is what I remember. This guy, he's the director of the camp. They're living hand to mouth. It's a very small organization. He says to me, Richard, we're kingdom people. Who's in power doesn't change our identity one single bit. If I could wish one thing for you for the next six weeks, it would be that you not forget that truth. You're a kingdom person. And it doesn't depend on who's in power, what party, what person, what politic. It doesn't, it doesn't depend on uh, when we gather here as a community, how long we have to remain scattered. Whatever is happening economically, pandemically, politically, you are kingdom people. And you have the capacity to be a person of hope and joy and power and wisdom and justice 
right in the midst of whatever's going on. That's our calling. That's what we're going to see this morning as we bring this Good Rain series to a close. And this morning we're looking at Matthew 5, 3 in particular from the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is basically a manifesto of what the people of God look like when God's reign is taking hold in their lives. And when God's good reign takes hold, this is called in the Bible the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God essentially has a manifesto, and that manifesto is the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, God says this, don't worry. And the word worry in the Greek language, very interesting, is the word merimnao. It means uh, to be divided. When you're worried, you're divided. And God is saying something here. If you're a kingdom person, you're not divided. You're not seeking God's kingdom plus upward mobility, God's kingdom plus your party, God's kingdom plus anything, God's kingdom plus climate change, God's kingdom plus ending abortion, God's kingdom plus ending racism, or whatever is the issue of the day. Listen, everything's important. Climate change is important. Race is important. Life in the womb is important. But the foundation of your calling is to make sure that before you vote, before you march, before you petition, before you invest your time and emotional energy in anything, you consider this one foundational question. Where is your citizenship? And I'm telling you, you are kingdom people. That's where your citizenship resides. And so the question on the table this morning or today, depending on when you're listening to this, is are you participating in God's good reign? Are you a kingdom person? And the answer to the question, who participates in God's good reign, is our topic today. And there are three characteristics of people who participate in God's good reign. People who participate in God's good reign have, number one, poverty of spirit. Number two, practical poverty and generosity in their lives. And number three, gentleness. Poverty of spirit, poverty and generosity, and gentleness, those are the three things that we look at today. So let's begin with this first characteristic of people who participate in God's good reign, people with poverty of spirit. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus is speaking to the disciples and a multitude of people who are listening on as well. And in Matthew 5, 3, he makes this very simple but profound statement, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the kingdom people, poor in spirit. Now, this word poor in the Greek language means absolute and abject poverty. In other words, total dependence. It's the same way that you depend on breath for air. You depend on God for God's reign to be made real in your life. It's that total sense of dependency. And so we're told here, blessed are those who are living in this sense of total dependency. And a word that we often use to describe this total uh, dependency is the word humility. And so I want to give you a definition of humility this morning that I think is very important. Humility is this. It's your awareness of the dissonance between where you are and where you need to be. But this dissonance, you hold this dissonance without a sense of blame or shame or defensiveness. Like I'm here but I should be here. I'm not blaming anyone. I'm not uh, overwhelmed with shame. I'm not defensive. I just see it. I see the dissonance. That's poverty of spirit. That's humility. So I need this sense of dissonance in my life if I'm going to be poor in spirit. And then the question becomes, for me, 
well, where does this dissonance come from? And I would say it comes from two places in my own life. This dissonance comes, first of all, from me experiencing my own brokenness, and second, it comes whenever I encounter holiness. And let me just look at both of those briefly. I develop poverty of spirit, I develop this dissonance when I experience my own brokenness. And I'll just share an illustration to show you what I mean. Uh, Tuesday, I had a very bad day. Uh, Monday was a hard day, and some things happened on Monday that were uh, creating in me a sense of, a buildup of frustration. There were things in in my family, uh, there were things at work, there were things politically, there were things in my social media feed, and I'm getting more and more and more and more frustrated. Now, many of you who see me publicly think that I never have a temper. And I'm just going to confess to you, that is absolutely not true. When you push my buttons right, I get angry. And so I think I have all this under control. And my wife and I, on Tuesday, we're walking uh, to town to get the mail. It's a one-mile walk, and we're just walking into town. We're going to get the mail. And uh, my wife asked me, how am I doing? And I began to, you know, pour out this sense of frustration. And I find myself getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And here we are. We're on the road. We're walking to town. It's a beautiful day, beautiful fall colors. And I'm shouting at the top of my lungs, and I am mad. And, I, and, 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 and this is a problem for me because I'm suddenly aware that I'm called to patience and I'm filled with anger. That's dissonance. Does that make sense? And now, when that happens in your life, there's several ways that we can react. I could have blamed the people with whom I've been frustrated. I could have said, oh, you know, here's why I'm angry, because of you and you and you and you. That's no good. I could also normalize my anger and say, you know, that's just the way I am. I have a temper. I'm an angry person. Neither of those paths are redemptive because the foundation upon which God's good reign is made visible in your life is the foundation of spiritual poverty. In other words, I have to come to this point. I have to realize it is not in me as Richard Dahlstrom, who I am apart from Christ. It is not in me to respond with patience, grace, wisdom, gratitude, and joy. I'm here. I'm supposed to be here. What do I do? That's poverty of spirit. And so what do you do when you're aware of the dissonance? Do you blame other people for your circumstance? Do you say that's just the way I am? Do you normalize it? I'm going to encourage you, don't do any of those things. Instead, fall in line with the saints. Because here's Peter's word when he saw Jesus and then saw who he was. He said, depart from me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Here's Paul, 2 Corinthians 6, uh, chapter 3, verse 6. I'm not adequate in myself to consider anything as coming from myself. Here's Isaiah when he encounters the holiness of God. Woe is me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. In other words, face with honesty the dissonance between who you are and who you're called to be. And when you do that, that's called poverty of spirit. And that's actually a very good place to be because if you see that, then your heart turns to Christ in a sense of dependency and you say to Jesus, I can't do it. And then Jesus says this, good news, I never said you could. I've been waiting for you, Richard, to come to the end of your own self-sufficiency 
so that I can now fill you with all that I am. I will be for you strength in your weakness, joy in your sorrow, patience in your anger, peace in your anxiety, hope in your despair, generosity in your greed. Now that you've named who you are and look to me, I can fill you. But until I face my dissonance, I will never know the fullness of Christ. This means, you guys, sharing and seeing your shortcomings is a good thing, not a bad thing. We don't need to live with this pretentious veil pretending to be sufficient when we know we're not. And this means we're able to live with this dissonance and allow the dissonance to be the, flat, the platform from which we uh, receive the fullness of Christ. So the first way that we develop this poverty of spirit is honestly facing our dissonance. The second way is through encountering holiness. And, and what I mean by that is there are times in our lives when we see people who are farther along in the journey of holiness than we are, and it causes us to see we have a ways to go. Uh, this happens for me quite a bit in literature. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer challenges me to move. Sophie Scholl challenges me to move. Dorothy Day challenges me to move. Harriet Tubman with the Underground Railroad challenges me to move. Martin Luther King uh, uh, Jr. challenges me to, lo- to, to, to move. This week, I did a podcast with a man named Charles Moore, who's part of the Bruderhof community. And this guy uh, had a successful career as a seminary professor and then uh, he moved from his, he retired from being a professor and moved uh, to live with a group of people who share all our possessions in common. And so he moved from like a secure salary to a, to a sense of, of, of living in community. And if you know anything about living in community, it's, it's actually very difficult. You're giving up a lot of your privacy. You're giving up a lot of your autonomy. You're giving up a lot of your financial security to live together with a group of people. And when I hear things like that, I'm challenged. But it doesn't need to be even that dramatic. When I see my friend building a mentoring ministry uh, uh, in the central district of, of Seattle, I'm challenged. When a woman in Rwanda shares in her house as she offers us hospitality, the story of her own profound loss during the genocide and how she now runs a kids club out of her home, I'm challenged. Uh, When a couple opens their home and teaches me to pray, I'm challenged. When people practice radical hospitality, I'm challenged. When a successful businessman takes the time to share wisdom with me, I know he shares wisdom with hundreds of other people too. I'm challenged by his generosity. I'm challenged by generosity and courage and justice and peace and prayer. I'm here. You are there. I want to move. Now, many of us live our lives rather than being challenged, uh, picking on other people, quick to see the weakness in another, and it becomes a defense mechanism to prevent us from seeing the holiness in another. I want to encourage you, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, I have determined from now on to know no one according to the flesh. In other words, when I see you, I'm looking for Christ in you. Why? Because when I see Christ in you, I want to move. I want to be more like you. And I can look at the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people in the room, and I can see in each of them areas in which they're further along than I am. And that challenges me. Does that make sense? So I'm going to look for the 
the, the good, the Christ in the other, and that motivates us to move. Of course, the defense mechanism that prevents this from happening is we dismiss people who challenge us. And I want to encourage you not to do that. God is saying to us, every person who you encounter can be a person who can move you along toward Christ-likeness. So there's a crux here as we bring this first characteristic to a close, poverty of spirit. And the crux is this, are you open to facing your own dissonance? Are you open to admitting that you're here and God is calling you to be here? Are you open to allowing your world to be disordered by encounters with holiness that are outside the mainstream? Because if you're open to this dissonance, then in that openness, as you begin to live into the dissonance, you recognize that your hands are empty. And when your hands are empty, God can fill them. But when your hands are full of blame, defensiveness, pretentiousness, pride, blindness, with full hands, God can give you nothing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second characteristic that we want to look at in our time together today is God is desiring to create a people of poverty and generosity. The same passage that you read in Matthew 5 is articulated in Luke chapter 6, which is also the Sermon on the Mount. And in Luke 6, interestingly, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the poor in spirit, but he says this, blessed are the poor. This is a very difficult verse for many people in the West. And I would say that some view this as a call to universal poverty. But I'm going to challenge you and say, no, that's actually not true. Jesus lived off the generosity of other wealthy people. So did Paul. The early church had business owners in it. Financial poverty is not a precondition for faith. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, what does he mean? Well, there's a key big idea here, and I want you to catch this. It's very important you catch this big idea. Uh, there, there's a potential blessing in poverty because God is for the poor and with the poor. But he, the big idea is this. God is calling each one of us to a rhythm in life of giving out of abundance and receiving out of poverty. Everyone is called to a rhythm of giving and receiving. And this is actually why the rich young ruler, when he's challenged by Jesus, goes away sad because he's unwilling to live into the rhythm. He's willing to receive wealth, but he's unwilling to give. This is why in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 and forward, the guy who, who builds giant barns and uh, has more food than he needs, and he says, man, uh, now you've got goods stored up for many years. It's time to, to take it easy, right? God calls that guy a fool because God says to him, that he has stored up treasure for himself at the cost of relationship with God. And the reason for this is because God wants him to participate in this world that is filled with a rhythm of receiving and giving and doing both freely. Remember what Jesus said? Freely you have what? Received, freely give. So let me just talk about this from both ends. When in poverty, receive freely. When wealthy, give freely because that's the way you're called to live. 
Now, what does it mean when in poverty, receive freely? Well, all of us are in poverty. So uh, receive, receive provision, receive employment, receive empowerment, receive encouragement, receive affirmation. Uh, If you have children, or in my case, I have children and grandchildren, you see particularly with grandchildren that they live in a state of dependency, right? There's this state of they need to receive from us. My wife and I are both, um, we're both youngests. And when we were first married, uh, we babysat, uh, maybe it was a four-year-old or something like this. I can't remember the age. But I'd never, I'd never babysat in my life. And so I don't know anything about kids. Here's a four-year-old. And we, uh, my wife had cooked some food and we put it out. And here's this, here's this sweet little girl. And she's sitting there. And she asked me to cut her f- food for her. And I didn't know that a four-year-old couldn't do that. I know nothing about developmental stages. So she asked me to cut her food. And this is what I said, cut it yourself. Now, uh, she started to cry a little bit, you know, and my wife gave me this dirty look, and, and then I, you know, then I, I ended up cutting her food for her, but I was like, what's wrong with her? How come she can't cut it herself? And that was the beginning of this dawning for me that all through our lives, all of us in different ways live with the sense of dependency born out of poverty. I can't cut my food. I need you to cut it for me. I can't create clean water. I need my city to provide it for me. I can't uh, create protein to put on my table. I need farmers to provide it for me. I can't. I can't. There, we, our healthy soil, our food, our air, our water, our, the infrastructure that brings all of it to you, you're still dependent. And even if you buy all of that, you can't buy immortality. You are invited, in other words, to live with this sense of dependency, recognizing that every breath, every sip of water, every day of life, every ray of sunshine, every authentically intimate hug, every sip of fine coffee, every step when your body is active and healthy, everything that is good is a gift that God has given you. You didn't earn it. You received it. Receive freely from God. In other words, live out of this state of healthy poverty so that you begin to see everything that you enjoy. Everything is a gift. You didn't build it. God gave it to you. Yes, you worked hard, but it is a gift from God. Everything you enjoy is called by God a good and perfect, not payment, James 1, a good and perfect gift. God gives us gifts we're called to receive. I'll never forget seeing these women in Nepal coming home from a day in the fields, harvesting grain, huge baskets on their head and a basket on their back, each filled with with grain, heavy loads. And as they're walking on this trail, six women, they're singing songs. And I asked one of them who then came back to the home in which we were staying and fixed us a meal and served us out of her generosity I said, do you always sing on the way home from work? And she said, yes. And I said, why do you sing every day on the way home from work? She says, because we're so amazed at all this grain. Look what God has what? Given. Wow. Living 
with this sense of receiving freely will create in you profound gratitude. Well, we, we, we need that. So receive freely. And then when wealthy, and you are, give freely. Out of their sense of abundance, our friends in Nepal slaughtered a yak for us. Out of their sense of abundance, our friends in Rwanda danced with us, hugged us, shared meals with us. Out of their sense of abundance, uh, people serve in our community meal. Out of their sense of abundance, people invest in making God's reign visible via the church through your financial offerings. Out of your sense of abundance, you throw parties for your, for your neighbors. Out of your sense of abundance, you walk with people through valleys. You write notes of encouragement. You serve on the front lines in a pandemic. You create beautiful food and beautiful drink. You share your art. You share your music. You open your wallet for a friend or a family member in need, or you buy Real Change magazine, or you mentor a young person, or you serve on a board, but you do it out of a sense of abundance. Freely you have received what? Freely give. We're called to live with this rhythm. We're not givers and not receivers. We're not receivers and not givers. All of us are called to be in a rhythm of giving and receiving. In one of uh, the books that I enjoy reading entitled The Hidden Life of Trees, you see this ecosystem of give and take as trees in a forest share through the mycelium network, kind of the, the, uh, the mushrooms and things that are hidden in the soil that create these long uh, kind of quote-unquote root systems. Through the mycelium network, trees share with each other uh, carbon and nutrients and even information. When one tree is threatened, that tree shares that there's a threat in the forest with the other trees on this information network. So here's trees giving and receiving carbon, nutrients, information, uh, and when, it, when an old tree is, is, is cut down, as soon as the chainsaw hits the tree, it begins offloading all of its carbon stores and sharing with younger trees of earlier generations so that, so that all of its resources are passed on to the next generation, giving and receiving, giving and receiving. None of this, I built it myself individualism. No, no, this is called the common good. All receiving is an acknowledgement of my lack of autonomy, my interdependence. All giving is an acknowledgement of the reality that I'm blessed and, uh, and I give above and beyond that which I receive because I've been given more than I need. And so I receive freely and I give freely. You've heard it said, God loves a cheerful giver and God does love a cheerful giver, but I'm not here to induce you into a guilty generosity like you has a drum up some sense of cheer. Listen, if you receive freely, then you're like this. Everything I have is a gift anyway. God is so good. And now I'm giving out of abundance so that we are in this community of interdependency, this ecosystem of the common good. The elder trees giving to the younger trees, all of us interconnected, giving and receiving in this beautiful dance. That's kingdom people. And kingdom people have this rhythm Receive with awe and gratitude. Give with a sense of joy. And the last thing that I want to share, the third characteristic of kingdom people is a sense of gentleness. Uh, Jesus says this, you've heard it said that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. In other words, uh, this is how Jesus puts it. 
You live in a world where people grasp for power because if you have power, you're able to impose your worldview on others and exercise your influence that way. But here, Jesus says that in the end, it won't be the power seekers with all their deal-making and boasting and promising and vilifying their enemies and exercising a power, whether financial or political or military or all three. These are not the people who will characterize the stream of God's blessing. No, God's blessing will come through the gentle ones. Because Jesus says, Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Or blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. This is because they're living in a way that is fully aligned with their creator. And those who do that are the real royalty on this planet. It's not about wealth, not about political power, military might, national prominence. It's about living fully aligned with the mercy and wisdom and simplicity and humility and generosity and commitment that is Christ. Live that way and you're reigning now. And so, you know, when you look in the Bible, you see people who are embedded in the power structures of this world, but they're living as kingdom citizens. I think of Daniel in the Old Testament. He's living in the Babylonian Empire, but he's clearly not of the Babylonian Empire. He's not seduced by their gods. He's not seduced by their lust for power. He's not enslaved to their values. And significantly, he's also not afraid of being contrarian, but he's not trying to be contrarian. He's not trying to be countercultural. He's not trying to be difficult. He's just being faithful to his real king, Jehovah. And because he's faithful to his real king, Jehovah, he says, no, I'm not going to bow the knee to these false idols. I won't do it. You, you can kill me, but I will remain faithful to the kingdom that is my real kingdom. He knows that no matter who's on the throne in Babylon, or even if the Babylonian empire collapses completely and another takes his place, he knows that no matter who is in power, his loyalties are elsewhere. This, this kingdom, this eternal kingdom is true freedom. Jesus lived the same way. He's in the Roman empire, but he's not of it. He's not seeking to overthrow Rome because he knows God's kingdom is embedded within the kingdoms of this world, no matter who's in power. But he's not only free from the demands of Rome, he's free also from the demands of the religious systems of the day that sought to usurp Rome. In other words, the Jewish system of the day had within it Essenes, Zealots, Herodians, and Pharisees, all these various quote-unquote denominations saying <clears throat> that if we do religion right, we can gain earthly power. Jesus' response, my kingdom, hello, not of this world. Therefore, I can reign no matter who's in power. Remember my Mennonite friends? We are kingdom people no matter who's in power. James 3 says that people who live this way will not be power hungry, will not lord it over others, will not seek to manipulate. James says it this way, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their power? No, listen, your wisdom will be revealed by your good life, deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it. Such, quote, wisdom does not come 
from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But, verse 17 of James 3, how refreshing is this? The wisdom that comes from heaven is pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, full of good fruit, impartial, and sincere. Man, when I read that, it's like I exhale and I feel calm all of a sudden. The real wisdom from God, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, not shouting, not blaming, not posturing, not politicizing, peacemakers sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Boy, that's the wisdom we need right now. And I'm going to tell you, this wisdom won't come about by virtue of an election. (laughs) This wisdom will come about as God's kingdom people populate our city and our region and our world with mercy, good fruit, sincerity, submission, and peace. You know, I'm reading a book uh, entitled The Way Home, A Year of Living Without Power. It's about a guy who literally, he drops out of society. And when asked, why are you dropping out? This is what he says, and I quote now from the book. He says, well, look what we're seeing. The mass extinction of species, widespread surveillance in our bedrooms and pockets, resource wars, cultural imperialism, the standardization of everything, the colonization of the wilderness and indigenous lands, the fragmentation of community, climate catastrophes, the automation of millions of jobs, inevitable inequality, race wars, economic wars, unemployment, purposelessness, the stark decline in mental health, the rise in industrial scale illnesses such as cancer, heart disease, diabetes, depression, autoimmune diseases, obesity, the tyranny, the fast-paced, relentless communication, Uh, on social media, films, pornography, TV, new products, celebrity gossip, all of which exists to get us to buy stuff. He says, I can't take it anymore. I'm dropping out. Hey, listen, I get I can't take it anymore, but can I say to you right now, don't drop out. You are kingdom people. You are, as we saw last week, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. God has called you to bring peace and mercy, and generosity, and this rhythm of giving and receiving, and this poverty of spirit, and this gentleness into our world. You are in the world, but not of it, as people of hope. That's your calling. No matter who wins, you are kingdom people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you that no matter who wins the election that's coming up in our country, Our calling to poverty of spirit, to this rhythm of giving and receiving, to this gentleness remains the same. And that your desire is to send us out into the world, Father, in in, in the marketplace, in homes, in cities, on farms, all the places that you have created so that light might shine in the midst of darkness. May we be kingdom people, Father. And we'll thank you for the adventure that awaits as we follow you. Praying in the name of Christ, who is our hope. Amen.